Welcome back to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I am really excited to have Joel Solomon back on the line. Joel was on the show before. He is um, the co-founder of Renewal Funds. He created, co-created something um, that we're going to talk a lot more about today called Hollyhock. Um, it's a retreat and adult learning center in the Pacific Northwest. And Joel, you're also an author. You wrote a powerful and phenomenal book called The Clean Money Revolution. Welcome back and hi, hi to the show. You're very kind to have me again. Yeah, I had a blast with you last time, and I, I loved all the, the wisdom that you, that you dropped and shared. So I, I can't wait to whatever we're exploring and expanding this time. I really want to hear a lot more about Hollyhock this time, because since we were last on the line, I actually had the pleasure to be there twice and kind of expand and evolve as an individual and as a group, um, both with a workplace and with kind of a, a group of visionaries that want to change the way education is happening. And so I think right. Hollyhock was the right place. But let's backtrack a little bit. For those who have no idea what Hollyhock is, um, where does that story begin? Okay. Well, the story begins in the human potential movement that uh, really grew up in the 60s. And there is a place called Esalen that is credited as perhaps the grandmother of bringing the human potential movement and some parts of, you would say, modern psychological and emotional and spiritual uh, explorations and studies to North America. And Esalen is in Big Sur, the California coast, and stunningly gorgeous place and uh, beautiful, beautiful piece of land. A brother-in-law of the founder of Esalen wanted a more remote location to do deeper, longer work. And, if, and, uh, something, and when the ferries came to Cortez Island, about a hundred kilometers north of Vancouver, up the coast, and power came from the grid to Cortez, population went from a few hundred to now a sprawling 1200 over the decades. But uh, it, so that made it possible to imagine getting people to a remote location for three and nine month type programs in which the greatest hits of the 60s, 70s and 80s in personal development and exploring consciousness and uh, going, let's just say, going further and finding out what it means to be a human and then what it means to be a practiced and effective human began. So Cold Mountain Institute lasted with that work for about a dozen years. It also had a houseboat in Coal Harbor in downtown Vancouver and did programs there. And it is probably rightfully credited with bringing that human potential movement or certainly being one of the pioneers of it to Canada. So interesting history there. Uh, when he died, Richard Weaver, when he died, his wife or widow did not want to carry it forward. And a lot of the people that were involved in it at the time moved to Gabriola Island and started another place called Haven. And the Haven goes forward today doing its body of work. But it got put for sale. And a few friends, a woman named Siobhan Robinson, uh, who had been the editor of the Greenpeace Chronicles, who a couple of decades later gave me her kidney about 11 years ago. Oh, wow. 
that's a, uh, a rare relationship. A, a miracle. Uh, but she was good friends with Rex Weiler, who had been the photographer for a lot of the green for Greenpeace early on mm -hmm. when it launched in Vancouver, and went on a lot of the the trips uh, and some of his footage of uh, the harpoons from the Japanese whalers going over the heads of of Greenpeace activists and their little rubber boats <clears throat> into the whale and, and all of that was part of actually, this, still, it's the, this one's not over with, but of saving the largest mammal on the planet and a very intelligent one, very large brained, the whales. Anyhow, they met through Greenpeace and Rex, went to Wounded Knee, to the FBI occupation at Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And there's a long story there that I'll just, I'll just leave at that, but they were, they, there was a long period of time with Native American people sitting while surrounded by FBI um, enforcement. And Rex spent a lot of time talking to elders and my best rendition of the story secondhand is that uh, at some point he said, well, what is it that we, meaning kind of the young emerging consciousness change makers, what should we be doing mm -hmm. to help? Well, what should this, we be doing? Yeah. With this tragedy, you know, of, of colonialism and genocide and, and such. And the simple essence that came out of it is commit to land. And because we're part of a time in history where everything's mobile and we've got, you know, we less and less commitment to place. So anyhow, Rex later was at the Vancouver Folk Music Festival, an important institution in Vancouver history as well. And there was a fortune teller. And uh, I'll keep the story a little shorter and just say they everyone put their rings in, a, in some water and the they, she drew out rings and then she would talk to you. And so this, a summary, a key point in Rex's uh, story was, when you see the red hollyhocks, you'll know it's your place. So life goes wow. on. Siobhan and her husband, Lee Robinson, were caretaking the now abandoned but for sale uh, Cold Mountain Institute. It's about uh, 48 acres. It's low bank waterfront, which is rare in the islands, meaning it's easy to access to the ocean. And on the timeline, we're about in 1980? Uh, we are at uh, 82. Got it. Yeah. <clears throat> and this land being low bank waterfront and the sunniest place on Cortez Island and one of the sunniest places in the region, uh, indigenous people were living up in the fjords where it was safer and they could kind of defend themselves and keep an eye on things. And Cortez is kind of out in the middle and it's exposed. Low bank waterfront means lots of people can land there. And, uh, you know, there were, there were uh, warring and slave capturing tribes from the north and all kinds of things that uh, we only know a little bit about. But for many, many eons, that land was the summer meeting ground of several different branches of one larger tribal group. 
So storytelling and trading and dating and resting and harvesting and preparing food for the winter and things like that went on there. We don't know lots about it, but over time we pick up a bit more here and there. But this, so this was, this was a place that was important for, re, for nourishment, uh, regeneration, sharing, caring, uh, and uh, learning from each other. For some number of time, we don't, we just don't know. Rex was taken by Siobhan to go look at this place that was for sale. There was some dilapidation happening, broken windows, things like that. And they sat down in what's the lodge. It was the old farmhouse that predated Cold Mountain Institute. And at some point, Siobhan looked across the room and noticed red hollyhocks poking in one of the broken windows. I believe it was a broken window. And so they had their revelatory, uh, we were past the 60s, but their revelatory uh, insight that maybe this was the place. So they decided that they would try for it and they called everybody they knew and scraped together $5,000 here, $8,000 there, and they put a down payment on the land. Uh, the story goes on much longer than that, but that was the very beginning. Wow. It had been built as a workshop facility and they had involvement with other, Rex was the uh, editor of the Green of uh, New Age Journal at the time working in human potential uh, topics that way. And so they called all their friends that they thought might go for this and they put together this down payment and then uh, decided that they would host educational workshops and retreats because the facility was built for that. They were connected to that world and there was the beginning. And I was there, I had, my life had found, had found my way for me to Cortez Island and I was being a gardener and I volunteered at Hollyhock in the kitchen and in the garden. So I saw, the, I saw all that happen, or some parts of it, uh, but uh, it took a few years before I actually became a partner. Wow, but you were there for the beginning steps. It's very, very curious to me because for one, this is a story that's, that's really told, kind of the origins of, of Hollyhock, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into like um, education and, and the content of education and, and also like the way yeah. that ripples impact into our society, maybe the social venture Institute and all that. What's really curious to me is that a lot of the circles that, um, that I find myself in and I find people that inspire me, uh, in are continuously still on a very similar journey is this finding a piece of land, finding a location yes. that in itself has wisdom to teach that where the location in itself has a resonance or a, a vibration that kind of allows for learning and uh, new forms of collaboration. Yes. So very curious to me that it really started with this clarity commit to a location. And when you, I mean, this was the, the, the foretelling of the future. When you see the hollyhocks, you, you will know you, you have it uh, like, almost like um, very hard to grasp, I guess, for the rational, rational mind to make a choice like that. So fast forward into 2018, now Hollyhock hosts how many people a year? Like several hundred? Uh, oh, no. Uh, uh, 2,500. Wow. 2,500 guests plus. Uh, reg all the presenters hold open evenings where they share their work and the anyone on the island is invited and it goes on from there. But the uh, actual people that come for five-day workshops and things like that is about 25. 
Very, very interesting. So in those 35, 38 years since, since the beginning, um, like what, what happened? Like, how would you um, like pick out maybe some cherries for us where you like, you um, really felt and realized, wow, we're, we're really doing the thing. We're birthed out of the human potential movement that inspired Greenpeace, that inspired Esalen um, and kind of step-by-step step became another institution almost in, in, in that same game. Like, what are maybe some, some memories or some elements that you can share with us that really highlight this evolution of learning or this, this adult kind of learning center? First, my disclaimer, Hollyhock is many hands and hearts and minds. <clears throat> and I've been involved for, at this point, I, may, I think I maybe have outlived everyone's actual number of years in formal roles at Hollyhock. But I have my point of view and, and piece of the, the history. And so I want to acknowledge there are, my stories will have been rounded off through history and memory and all that kind of thing. Uh, key moments in Hollyhock history. Um, first, it was a for-profit because it was a piece of land and and we had to buy the land and um, that's, and so it was a, a real scrap, a scramble that the founders, the original founders did to piece it together. I said, they got the down payment. And then from there, they opened up the business and there were many, many years of running out of money, including putting the place for sale once with the real estate signs and everything. And then I would say miracles and magic happened. Um, there was a commitment to consensus. There was a commitment to a kind of group intentional meditation or, or uh, going deeper for reflection to find the direction of the time and to bring together consensus as the number of partners grew and the years went on and marriages came and went and relationships and all the things that happen with groups of people. Um, we managed for, to this day, to have never had to have a vote in order to solve something. And we managed to come to consensus. Wow, so all decision-making <clears throat> processes or higher level decision-making processes involve consensus? Yes, ultimately we're running, now there's uh, 80 something staff, there's uh, these couple few thousand guests a year. There's financial decisions. There's legal things that have to happen. And long ago, the place was delegated to. There, there's a board. Uh, there's a, a, a typical kind of structure with someone who's responsible, and then a team of people working with them and and on on through to run a hospitality facility that is attempting to support the evolution of human consciousness would be the simplest way to say it. Is that really the the core of it, the evolution of human consciousness, that was like the intention for the, all the education that takes place? I think so. Um, in a very pragmatic way. Uh, this, this was a place that, first of all, you had activists that started it. And then over time you have, well, people like myself that were involved in how do you move money into alignment with the long-term future well-being of of ecology and humanity. And so working in entrepreneurial sectors 
Uh, and so many different kinds of streams uh, connected through Hollyhock over time. But I think the deeper caring is how do people today help the long-term future? And what are the kinds of things that we, that are under focused on in conventional institutions of education? Uh, the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual, the esoteric, the, uh, the new wave uh, of, of, of emergence of new and different kinds of thinking. And that, so that stayed consistent. And it struggled for a lot of years, particularly financially, but for all the reasons that it, it is not easy for groups of human beings to pull off intentional community. And this version is different in that the ones that often succeed have a spiritual lineage or a teacher, a guru, or a very, very strong unified point of view that then went to do that together. This is the art of eclecticness and many traditions. And how do you draw from all traditions? And then how do you take that work into the world and be practical and successful with it? So the activist roots never left. Um, Hollyhock did, has done a lot of work over the years with environmental movement, indigenous and environmental relationships, social entrepreneurship. Uh, really, you, I, you could go through the list and a lot of these topics get addressed by different groups of people, different teachers that come there. Um, you should probably actually get me back on track because I realized I can't remember what you exactly. That's asked. all right. That's all right. I mean, we, we were just, we were just um, exploring what's kind of the core of education. And I core. think it's, you already mentioned it. And I think it's fascinating that you kind of trailed off a little bit there because when it, we are tackling such like large topics, like the expansion of human consciousness, it, um, especially through like emotional, psychological or spiritual teachings, I guess um, it's easy to lose track. Right. And it's easy to, to, um, to kind of like, just see that the vastness of what's in there is, is way more complex than our brains can even process. So to get you back on track, maybe um, to shift away a little bit from education. Um, I, I love that you mentioned location and committing to location was like piece number one. How, how do you, how do you feel this collaborative nature? You mentioned it a little bit, like all the things that one can imagine when there is an intentional community meeting, but how did this collaborative nature really play out and how has it evolved? Effective leadership to me is a part of healthy collaborative uh, undertakings. Hmm. How, there's, there's consultation and consensual. Uh, what do I mean? Yeah, consensual leadership and consultative leadership, consultative leadership. So that uh, those who are given the authority and the privilege to serve in leadership roles who do a good job of staying in touch with their community and their constituents and their supporters or, or the people who benefit from it, uh, I believe that's the secret to longer term uh, healthy resilience. And so that was kind of embedded into how, how we all act. I mean, if you've committed to a consensus process to begin with, um, but you also have to pay the bills and move forward and figure things out. Uh, I would say various people that were in leadership positions over time 
had to bring their highest uh, ability to to serve that complex kind of governance structure and be wise right. enough when to bend and who to include and how to include more people and that kind of thing. But there's also, <clears throat> there became a need for jobs and a product and how do you pay for this facility? And I said that the teaching and workshop business grew up to do that. Uh, so you have this groundedness of practicality. If we don't, if enough people don't come here, we fail, we lose the place, the land gets subdivided or something. Right. Um, and so groundedness balance, through practicality. I like that. Yeah. Balance of the pragmatic with the aspirational and the esoteric really. And uh, how, why do some places make it and why don't others? Uh, that's a bit of a mystery. There are some principles that I, of course, feel from my own experience with it, but it's, it's not easy. And especially for modern people that are not coming out of tribal histories or spiritual sects um, that have kind of ground rules about how you do things, um, it's, it's, a, it's not an easy experiment to pull off over time and things change over time and, and all kinds of stuff. But um, I would just say that Hollyhock was blessed by its remoteness with enough accessibility and with the founding roots that I just spoke about. It was, it was multidisciplinary and kind of a generalized Everybody here wants to do our best for the future of humanity and ecology. Cool, really powerful. So I think one of the reasons, Joel, while we're talking about all this, um, for one, it's the, the, the lesser told story, told story of Hollyhock. Um, but also you shared with me before this episode that there is this fantasy of writing a book uh, that, that kind of started bubbling up in you over the last years of writing a next book, um, which will maybe include a lot more of the story of Hollyhock and you were talking about the transition of leadership and give, yes. give us a little bit more insight into that because I, I, can, I can hardly imagine at this point how a consensus only process really turns effective uh, having been part of um, multiple group projects and re re realize regularly that leadership every now and then you need somebody who makes a choice or who stands up and leads into a choice. Um, so yeah, what, what would be in this book? Yeah. <laughs> Well, somehow that dynamic managed to work. And I think the pragmatic gets you in the face at some point. And either there are people who have the wherewithal and the savvy to navigate and help everyone's voice be part of the mix, but come to resolution. Um, no, it's a, it's, there's a lot to say about that. Um, the five-year generational transfer of leadership that I'm moving towards the last year of includes one more story. Maybe 18 years ago, uh, we were in a period where the early leadership had completed and moved on to, to other things. And <clears throat> finding people to come and devote their life to this who are new to it and can handle all of the uh, complexities that one could imply hearing the story thus far uh, was, was quite a, let's say we were, there, were, there were other forces that were helping us. There had to be. Uh, I had become board chair 
And the work that I did in my day job, which was to help an extraordinary woman who knew that her amount of wealth was more than she needed and wanted to deploy it today, not after she died, and brought me in to help strategize and implement that, included a commitment to Hollyhock. We had four major areas. I won't go into those with this conversation, but one of them was uh, humans, how to be better humans as one of the four areas. And Hollyhock, we knew from the beginning, would be kind of the a symbolic and also real uh, manifestation of that. And so there was a campus that was already, a lot of things had been moved along. It had lacked severely in financial resources. And so Carol Newell committed a substantial amount of money over time to invest in a lot of the key program elements and also the stabilizing of the campus. So it was time to recruit someone who could come in, stay for a while, and none of the people that were existing players were ready to commit their life to it. And it was becoming a, a hospitality business also, which you have to know how to manage. So uh, I won't tell the whole story, but uh, I'll, I'll do the, a quick version, which is I went to a gardening school in California in 1978. My garden teacher there is a very unique guy, Michael Stusser. And he ended up in the, a very alternative spa business, which was his way to support the human spirit and consciousness and such. And it's called osmosis. And osmosis takes wood chips, vegetable enzymes, and sawdust and... Oh my God, well, I have to forgive me on that one. And one else, yeah. Three very basic elements and creates effectively compost. Okay. It's a Japanese healing treatment that creates heat. And you bury yourself basically, or you get buried in these, uh, in this heated uh, composting. As a spa kind of treatment. As a spa treatment. And then there's a massage afterwards if you want that and that kind of thing. And it's known to have healing effects. And there's a lot of these in Japan, but there are very few anywhere else. And so he was part of the spa industry because of that, but a very strange part of it. Like we're, we're a strange part of the uh, advanced education industry, um, a unique one. And uh, he met a woman who was managing a facility in the desert of California that had natural hot springs. And it was a favorite place for, let's say, alternative and interesting characters from L.A., in the music and film business and other things who went there for their own versions of advancing consciousness, et cetera. And uh, he brought her to the very first social venture institute, which was called Spirit and Business. Spirit and Business. And I had put that together without really having an agenda or any background at doing something like this. And the idea was I was with Carol, we were investing in green companies and interesting front edge kinds of companies, mostly in Vancouver, but beyond as well. And um, we thought that we could start an event where we would bring skilled lawyer, accountant, organizational development coach, things like that, together with early stage entrepreneurs in these kind of do-gooder businesses and try to provide this additional resource base 
but I wasn't savvy enough at that time really to even create the agenda. And they all, like 40 of them got there and uh, we kind of designed it together at the time. It all worked out. There's some important characters who were at that first one. And one of them was Michael Stuss's friend, Dana Bass Smith. And uh, Dana, uh, I thought was a very interesting woman. You'll hear more of that story in just a moment here. And, but she was from the professional hospitality business, but a very alternative one. And we needed someone who knew the professional side of it. Nice. And um, the first night I climbed across the crowded deck overlooking the ocean because there was an empty spot next to her. And I sat down and I said, how would you like to run this place someday? I mean, it was a total <laughs> instinctual. It was crazy. Out of nowhere, I, you just felt I like just, this is what I got to ask her. I just looked at that her. And I, th and I thought, oh, she's got the right, you know. The so anyway, we recruited Dana to the board and then to CEO. And then two years later, she and I were married. <laughs> that's that's, that's <clears throat> a much longer story, I believe. But it is. wow, what, that's a transformation. I, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> but all of that was part of this generational transfer of leadership. So then Hollyhock, with Carol's backing and vision and love and all of the people that have been accumulated by then so now there's money coming into the situation and there's a professional manager right and i ended up being board chair forever because dana and i as a partnership um i guess could pull off enough balancing of all the different elements light enough touch make decisions at the right times and so we realized that that had to end and I'd seen a lot of very uh, unsuccessful transitions of major leadership roles in the world. And so I was determined that this one would be successful. So we said, five-year plan, uh, first couple of years is just telling the board, <clears throat> we're leaving. It's real. We don't know exactly when, but it's happening. You got to start getting ready for this. Second uh, was we gave one-year notice together. Third was hiring process. After that became, I will stay as board chair for the first year of the new leader. And then I'll stay on the board one additional year with the new board chair. Because we'd had, for 18 years, it was kind of handled. Right. And uh, how do you get people to move to Cortez Island, spend their time? You know, I mean, it sounds romantic, but nonetheless. And uh, anyhow, so we did a professional search process and all of this is underway and we found a wonderful next leader and leadership team who are doing their version of collaborative leadership and Dana is on a contract a board member put it I hope this, this is not too much detail but I'll finish no this, this is this is fascinating actually I, okay I, so so yeah. Dana's on contract to advise Peter wrench a very interesting guy with deeply aligned values of at the higher picture and a lot of serious professional skills and a deep understanding of the change the world aspect of this, including activism and supporting people to go into politics and entrepreneurs who are doing better and, and, and all of that. It is not an easy thing to hold. It's not really a spa. There's massage and there's swimming in the ocean and there's hot tubs, but this is a this is a social change organization. Yeah. So, so Peter Wrench and 
Charlene Lowe and Penny Naldred are kind of the, the leadership team right now. And we are now to, uh, in May, I finish being board chair, and then I'll stay on the board one more year. We have selected a likely next board chair. And here we are. Uh, pushing Four years into year. that five-year plan. I find that really fascinating. And thank you for going into it with a little bit more detail, because the amount of good intentions uh, that I've seen in, in my like last 10, 15 years of, of well, creating things and, and being a professional and, and trying to do alternative things and believing in them powerfully, no matter what. Um, it's just very interesting to see like good intentions are all over the place, but solid actions are, are a complete different story. And um, so, so learning through, well, for one, through transitions of other organizations, but then also through the generations. And if somebody has done this for, for 18 years, right there, I think there can be a lot more in integrational learning or integrative learning kind of being done by telling these stories exactly as you're sharing it right now so for one we, we feel entertained and somewhat educated but for two we can actually take the wisdom out of someone like you that has lived this for two decades right and, and realize wow um things don't need to change overnight right we were we were you and i were, were chuckling about technology um before this this call and we were both waving our phones into the camera and said these have just been here for 10 years but the transition to the smartphone didn't happen overnight either. We were, we were, we gotten used to it step-by-step step, and the first one was born and everybody was, what's this? So, so taking the time and consciously understanding that um, when we want to create real change, when we want to create sustainable change or even regenerative change, I think it's, it's good to have a long-term plan. So very excited to see how Hollyhock also will transform from, from there onwards. And we're talking 38 years for me. And it's never been, I've never been paid and it's, it's uh, obviously not a full-time job. It's a, it's a volunteer position and a love and, and a life work. You've been a volunteer from the first day. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, but there's been thousands of people that got um, inspired and got inspired to create ripple of impacts through their projects into the world, especially, I guess, through the social venture um, Institute. You want to tell a little bit about that one? Because you, you yes, started there with the original story. I will. And, and it's basically bringing uh, entrepreneurs that want to do good in the world and providing each other to help each other. So it's, I, I, these days I say it's a help each other festival. Uh, it's a, it's a, a cross sector so that people are free to speak openly. It's not just all your competitors and that whole scene. Intergenerational. I don't need to explain why and peer learning. There are almost no speakers and everything's interactive. We have an evening speaker, we call it a true confession, where someone considered successful, we usually have two for-profits and one not-for-profit or activist to keep the edge there. We want business people to not forget the reasons they went into business and what mm -hmm. they care about and that kind of thing. And we want not-for-profits to get exposed, not-for-profits and social change people to get exposed to some of the good the better tools that happen by having to manage businesses and budgets and things like that uh, but most of all it's a there's a big in, intersectional type thing that is happening from it and my personal goal was always minimum 50 percent new people preferably 70 percent as diverse as possible in every form of diversity you can come up with and that then uh, affects a business culture but a lot of other things. And um, so 
But there's actually a series of these types of work. And the environmental sector was really what came first um, because of the Greenpeace founding and the values in the place and all of that kind of thing. Some of the first money that got raised was to invite environmental leaders from mostly British Columbia to come together and get treated to all of this other things that Hollyhock offered, like their own well-being. How do they have better relationships? How do they negotiate tough political challenges together? How do they influence politics? How do they do, uh, how do they, how do, what do they look like on camera to the general public? You know, on and on and on. And so that was the first part. And there's some great stories uh, by some well-known uh, and successful now uh, later career activists of being invited by these weird hippies for to come hang out and figure out how to work together better. And they were like, no way, are we, no, we're not gonna do that. We ain't got time for that. They're sleeping on the floor at the office and you know, they got big battles to fight. And what that has grown into over the years with many different iterations and expansions and it has become probably a, a cultural change movement that has filtered into a lot of not-for-profits and activist work uh, and cross-class, uh, cross cross-race, cross-issues, cross-reconciliation uh, uh, with indigenous people. And I have one story I want to share to end this little part with. But so we ended up piece by piece. I mean, we've, we've run conferences on digital activism, uh, we're going to have a new conference next year called How to Get Elected, which will be nonpartisan, but we, there need to be people in politics who care and have good values and know how to function. And uh, media that matters for filmmakers and journalists and things who are looking for the, ho the holy land of media that matters, um, and, and et cetera. So it, as, as these things have built, we have people that go between the different conferences and then there are lots of trainings in addition to the personal growth programs that Hollyhock offers that might be in facilitation skills, fundraising. Lynn Twist, who's a well-known and renowned uh, fundraiser, who's about the soul and the spirit of money as your starting place. Uh, there's gonna be a gathering of several top flight fundraisers next year where people come together to learn about fundraising from a new perspective. Second, a very extraordinary woman named Akaya Winwood, who has been managing the Rockwood Leadership Institute in the States, which if you were to see the roster of people who go through the Rockwood Leadership Institute, you would understand all kinds of social movements and I guess I can say resistance uh, activities and, and things like that going on. Um, so Akaya is putting together an ongoing series of gatherings basically focused on women of color. And this is a tremendously satisfying success for Hollyhock that a basically white dominated culture in a small island on the coast of British Columbia that's working hard to figure out reconciliation with indigenous people and all these things is, has been able to build also a base that increasingly brings diversity from all kinds of sectors together. So 
I got lost in that story a little bit. I'll just say, you know, obviously I'm proud of a lot of the things that happened here, but yeah. this, this conscious, this, uh, I used to call it a crafted gatherings that actually have an intention to, uh, I love these insights and stories you're sharing, Joel. And I think um, these crafted events and gatherings are exactly what um, me and a lot of people who are in, in kind of minor circles are, are up to and um, are really wanting to see a lot more. of. And I think there is, right. there, there, it's not lacking in numbers of people at this point in evolution. Right. I guess a lot of us are actually understanding that through collaboration, through specific locations on the planet, uh, a lot of change can kind of be catapulted and, and be the evolution of education. And where that takes us, I, I don't know. I don't want to um, pre pretend I know that. But I, what I find so curious is that you've been literally volunteering in a place for 35 plus years, while you're also known for your book, The Clean Money Revolution, which is really the observation and the understanding of the transition of trillions of dollars into conscious business or, or kind of the, the, the rise of a new economy. And the trillions come based in one simple way, just generationally. I'm not going to live that many more decades. Whatever money I have is going to pass on to younger people right. and to organizations and things. And so there's a tremendous shift in capital. And it's been part of the, you know, one of the many agendas in these gatherings is to get people with money there also so that they get exposed and they don't have to say, I'm a person with money. They, they come as how, you know, who they are. And this is increasingly important because money has created so many barriers and so many walls and money is actually made from the planet and from people, from people's labor and from extraction from the planet and then the trading of goods and services. And so capitalism grew out of that and whatever other isms you can come up with grow out of it. And uh, we need, the, there's more than enough money in the world, so, but it's not being focused very well. And people are very unconscious about it or unconscious in the sense that they've been trained or the, the system says, the only thing to do with money is make it, is grow it bigger. And don't worry about where it's going. Just keep, just make money. Don't worry about uh, that you might own slaves or you might be creating, you might be poisoning other people's babies or, you know, that you're causing, you're wrecking havoc across the landscape, but it's just a piece of paper with some stocks and bonds listed on it. And so this is a, this is a spiritual awakening that must happen because we have all the ingenuity, all the resources. We're not that good at necessarily all working together and figuring out the right agendas, but we have the capacity to do that. Especially with intention and focus coming from a, a spirited and loving place. I, I believe in the same, in the same things, we, we are able to create any world we truly dream of. And it's, it's basically up to us and uh, the learning throughout the generations of what world we we don't just believe in and hope for, but we're actively carrying out step by step and, and birthing. And, and in, in our pre-conversation, you were interested in this and I'd like to share it, which is there is actually a movement uh, of centers. And these centers range from guru-based uh, spiritual leader kinds of things to completely uh, equal voice, uh, experimental communities attempting to be together. And then these educational centers, and it's, it's, there's actually, it's probably true to say there's hundreds of these places now. They're little known. There's no 
industry. There's no, it's just, if you live back in the east of the United States, you know about Omega Institute and Kripalu. And if you're in San Francisco, LA, you know Esalen. And if you're in Oregon, you know Brightonbush. And it goes, there's actually many of them. And so there started some years ago, the North America Centers Gathering. And there might be 20, 25 people from the leadership of these organizations. And they'd get together and to some degree, share the, share the pain of trying to hold these together and finance them and make them functional and, and last into the future, but also tips and build personal relationships and become collaborative. So who are the presenters that you've found who are doing really extraordinary work that we should reach out to to bring to our place? For example, how do you actually deal with employing a bunch of people in a highly inspirational, we're all here to save the world, but then there's people that got to clean toilets and chop vegetables and get paid, you know, how much can you pay? Uh, there are places, some of these communities are still paying zero dollars, but providing housing and a little bit of spending money. You know, so, so it's a very complicated world, uh, very, very uh, idealistic and uh, aspirational. Okay, so that organization has grown and grown over the years, and Hollyhock is going to be really honored next year to host the gathering. And where there were 20 or 30, we think there will we'll probably, we might fill it at 100. And these are people wow. coming from China and Portugal. and So those are who, about 100 leaders of other communities or learning centers, uh, like or somewhat like Hollyhock or Esalen. Um, mostly self-identified self-identified yeah but gathering to to learn with each other and from each other how to not just talk about the idealistic world but how to like make it happen and how to grow through those growing pains and what happens behind the curtain yeah very what very do you do when you have you know there's always a staff revolt at all these places that's a you know <laughs> there's a cycle <laughs> well we for those for those of you who are listening from from canada there's a staff revolt in the canadian post right now so if you're waiting for a package it probably won't come this week <laughs> Um, for those for those of you who who are listening from let's say Germany, I know that Lufthansa, for example, has a strike of their steward stewardesses and stewards and and pilots like every year. Like I think this is this is not just necessarily something that happens or is a symptom of like well-intentioned volunteer-run projects. This no. is the reality in in any business and any kind of grouping. Right? Is sometimes there, yeah, there there are growing pains and we need to show up with each other and actually. Yeah. I guess only those who, that's what I've learned over the last 10 years, only those who actually show up in the painful moments are the ones who are making effective change because showing up as long as you're having a lot of fun is really easy, but finding the fun in the contrast and finding how to shape uh, the next step based on contrast is really a skill and, and yeah, powerful to, to learn from each other in that. And people are paid pretty decently now, especially for Cortez Island uh, nice. range ranges. And uh, winters are long and nights are short and the wind blows and the storms come in. And so every place has its unique uh, characteristics, but I'm so excited to be there for the center's gathering and just feel the vibrancy of what's going on globally uh, in this, this little slice. When is this gathering gonna happen? Late, late um, summer? Not sure I can remember the month. I, no. think it's, I think it's actually in May or June. 
Okay, got it. Um, but it's well, it's it's for the people that are you know from these centers and right. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, for those of for those of you who are listening who've heard about the superhero mastermind that um, me and and a few others are hosting and bringing together and. Um, I just told Joel, I would love to host a superhero Academy mastermind at Hollyhock, maybe late fall next year. So hopefully we'll get to experience Hollyhock in person and, um, yeah, learn with the land and, and, and the whales and the powerful nature around there. Um, cause that's a very rare sight in the world. It is. And, uh, just a, one more detail on that for people that aren't from the region. When you leave Vancouver, and you go up the coast on the highway, you can go to the end of that highway and to the end of the gravel road, and you've gotten just across the water from where Hollyhock is and Cortez Island. And British Columbia goes hundreds and hundreds more miles or kilometers to the north. And then when you get away from the coast, there's the Northwest Territories, there's the Yukon. This is one of the last great, fairly wild places on the planet. It's a very interesting spot for a consciousness, a concentration of consciousness. I love those words. Those are good words to wrap our conversation. I think the responsibility we have in the Pacific Northwest, because it's one of the last extremely wild places in the world, um, right. not the only one, but one, one of the few that are like absolutely wild. I think this responsibility is, is quite massive. And so for people to gather and learn in that environment and realize nature is abundant, nature is a teacher and um, nature is what, what births us into life, I think is super powerful. So Joel, thanks for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to share at this point? I guess I, I will uh, just go to what, uh, I, I feel, what, what the intention of my book was, which is um, we who are alive today have, have the benefit <clears throat> of incredible concentration of what human ingenuity has created. A lot of it's pretty damaging. The potential to turn that into the rise of consciousness that might take us centuries into the future and that our descendants, uh, we are the ancestors of what's coming and yeah. a lot depends on us. And people will be watching the choices we made and the commitments we made with our lives because we've doubled the population since I was born. We will hit 10 billion people for some of you. You might hit and reach 10 billion people. We have all the resources and ingenuity that we need and we have to be the best ancestors for the next thousand years that we possibly can. Hmm. And all so. of this work that we're talking about is part of that. Wow. Joel, thank you for making the time again. Those words are powerful. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. This is, this is very true. We are the ancestors for the generations to come. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure. And thanks for, uh, thanks for having me twice. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. Make sure to follow the podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Check us out either on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you love to listen to this kind of information. My name is Julian Guderlei. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.